If you've had a conversation with me in the last few weeks and I had the opportunity to bring it up, it is likely that we had a conversation about forgiveness. As of late, I have been deeply pondering the act of forgiveness, the meaning of forgiveness, both in our individual lives and our life together as a church. I've been wrestling with what it means that during worship every week, we say the confession first. We voice repentance and we ask for forgiveness first, and then we receive the assurance of pardon, the promise of forgiveness. I've wondered whether this is too close, whether this too closely reflects our societal turned religious framework of offense, repentance, and pardon given that we are indeed people that are already forgiven, already recipients of God's love and grace, even before we have the opportunity to confess. I've also been wrestling with how forgiveness works in our own lives. Sometimes it works in wild and truly miraculous ways where the gifts of forgiveness are abundantly clear for all to see and to appreciate. And I know that I'm not one to bring much media into my sermons, but to give you an example of this kind of miraculous forgiveness, I want to play for you a brief clip from StoryCorps. It's a conversation between two people, two people that Heather, my wife, actually works with, Mary and O'Shea, a mother, and through the power of forgiveness, a son. I felt them telling their own story was more appropriate than me trying to put words to it. So here are Mary and O'Shea. You and I met at Water Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset as what I remember from court, where I wanted to go over and hurt you, but you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And he became human to me. You know, when I met you, it was like, okay, this... God is real. And then when it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears. And the initial thing to do was just try to hold you up as best I can. Hug you like I would my own mother. After you left the room, I began to say I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and the animosity, all the had in my heart of years that I had totally forgiven you. As far as receiving forgiveness from you, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. It's something that I'm learning from you. I treat you as I would treat my son, and our relationship is beyond belief. We live next door to one another. Yeah, so you can see what I'm doing. You know, firsthand. Mm-hmm. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And you know, our conversations, they come from, boy, how come you ain't called over here to check on me in a couple of days? <laughs> you ain't even asked me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh-huh. I find those things funny because it's it really mother for real. Well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. You know, you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. 
and just to hear you say be in my life in the manner that which you are is my motivation it motivates me to make sure that i stay on the right path you still believe in me and the fact that you can do it despite how much pain i cause you it's amazing i know it's not an easy thing you know to be able to share our story together so i admire that you can do this i love you lady i love you too son it's extraordinary it's big miraculous forgiveness there was an, an egregious unthinkable offense a genuine experience of repentance and the miracle of forgiveness, a miracle of forgiveness that gave these two people and everyone that they encounter a deep sense of redemption and restoration to life, to life. This is real. This is real. And I believe that it is a testament to the redeeming power of God at work in the world. But what about other, smaller-scale experiences of forgiveness? What about the experiences of forgiveness needed in complicated and ongoing relationships, like between parents and children, between siblings? What about the kind of forgiveness that's needed for chronic letdowns, chronic disappointments? What about the forgiveness that's needed when repentance is not actually a part of the equation? Thus far, in my line of work, in my own life, I've found that this kind of forgiveness is more difficult to experience. It's more difficult to grant. It's more common. More people struggle than not with forgiveness in the mundane frustrations and the hurt of everyday life. Now, I'm not the kind of preacher who also likes to go around making broad statements that begin with, the Bible says, but in this case, I can be so bold, I think, because indeed the Bible says a lot about forgiveness. Jesus says a lot about forgiveness. And what the Bible says, what Jesus says, well, for someone who has been hurt and therefore in a position to offer forgiveness— it can be downright challenging. And our text for today poses one of those great challenges. But it is indeed what we are created for and called to. So let's get to it. Trusting that our creating God has indeed created us for grace-filled love, let us turn to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to begin with the 27th verse and will listen to God's word for us. Let us pray. God of grace, God of love, God of mercy, make known to us your power. Make known to us your presence, your redeeming presence through your word. May your good news crack open our clenched hearts so that we might be transformed by your word. Your 
merciful word once more. Amen. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High. For the Holy One is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your creating God is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in the context of the gospel, while Jesus has been teaching and healing people for some time, he's only identified the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles just a short while before this lesson of forgiveness. Earlier in this chapter, he identified those 12 and immediately began teaching and healing among a large and diverse crowd. Turning to the disciples, the first lesson Jesus offers is what we understand to be Luke's account of the Beatitudes, which contains both blessings and warnings. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he says, but woe to you. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And after this series of blessings and warnings, Jesus launches into the teaching that is our scripture passage for this morning. He expounds upon these blessings, these warnings, with lessons on practical application of grace. Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, I know that sounds a bit crazy. But remember, the one that is your enemy is not necessarily the enemy of God. Love your enemies. In fact, remember that our enemies are also God's beloved creation. 
we are to search for the redeeming qualities in those who curse us. We are to pray for those who abuse us. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes your goods, do not ask for them again. Most of what you have, you do not need. Essentially, Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. In a nutshell, Jesus claims that to be a disciple, practicing grace and mercy in our daily lives is going to be a big part of life. A big part of it. And for the most part, these are simple enough lessons to abide by. When it comes to most of the relationships in our lives, relationships with acquaintances or distant family members, friends who come and go for a season in our lives, or even colleagues that we see every day, for most relationships in our lives, these guiding lessons of grace are relatively easy to follow. For the uncle, whose politics are at the opposite end of the political spectrum from our own, it's easy enough to show respect over the Thanksgiving table and avoid sensitive topics for the brief period of the family reunion. For the neighbor who adorns their yard with signs or decorations perceived to be an eyesore, well, it's easy enough to draw the curtains on the window facing such a neighbor and lend them sugar when they ask for it. And for the coworker, this is where it gets a little bit trickier. For the coworker who always replies all. <laughs> for the coworker who sends an email when they could just walk down the hall. For the coworker who acts like there is, in fact, an I in team. Yeah, it's possible. It's challenging. It's possible, though, to be respectful, to be professional around the office. Although, let's face it, we probably do comment about them over the dinner table with our families and friends but we can do it in the moment. But for other relationships in our lives, perhaps the more intimate relationships, the more long-term relationships, practicing the grace Jesus describes can be much more challenging. Because in these kinds of relationships, we are far more emotionally invested. The depth of those relationships make them more complex, make them sometimes messier, sometimes more complicated. Long-term relationships are vulnerable to habits developing, and not all habits are for all stages of life. Memories last longer. Experiences build upon each other. In these kinds of relationships, we are more prone to struggle with letting go of the strike of disappointment or the lash of defensiveness or the slap of disrespect upon our cheeks. Even if we feel like we've taken responsibility for the hurt that caused someone to strike us, sometimes the blows keep coming. And in an effort to be faithful to what Jesus says, we turn the other cheek once again. But as we do, we tend to ask, how many times do I have to keep turning my other cheek? Haven't I been struck enough? Why haven't they taken their responsibility? Haven't I put up with this long enough? They need to show some respect, show some penitence before I can forgive. And this, this, Jesus suggests, is where the grace of God, where faith 
in a God of grace-filled love plays a key and intimate part in our lives to deliver us from pain into abundant life. Oftentimes we're prone to cling to our hurt. I know I am. I know I do. We cling to our pain, to our identity as victim in our important relationships, and it takes time to process through that. In this time of processing, we try everything we know. We set boundaries. We go to therapy. We make changes. We distance ourselves from the relationship. This time of feeling hurt, of processing through these feelings, this is part of the journey. It is part of the journey. And our scripture for this morning suggests that eventually we will exhaust our mortal resources. We will exhaust every mortal resource we have to mend the brokenness, to forge ahead in relationship with one that has hurt us. We will exhaust our mortal resources, and we will be left with spiritual ones. And we will be left with spiritual ones. Without detail, without elaboration, Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be poured into your lap. For the measure that you give, you will get back. You have been created to be recipients of God's grace-filled love. Jesus tells us you have been created to be recipients of God's grace-filled love. You have been created to be practitioners of grace and mercy, too. Though it might not be easy, it will always take time. It will most likely get messy, but it will lead to abundant life. So the challenge for the disciples and for us, is how to get there. How to get there. How do we get to the place of forgiving when the pain is valid, when the pain is real, when the pain is fresh? What might it look like for us to use our spiritual resources alongside the mortal ones? Desmond Tutu suggests that forgiveness is not an exercise of belittling the harm that took place. It is an act of claiming power and identity in the redeeming God. Can we imagine? Can we imagine inviting this merciful God to enter in, to redeem, to heal, to make new our hearts and our lives? Might we trust in the God of mercy? Might we believe in the God of grace, have confidence in the God of perfect love? Might we? And if we do, might we loosen our tight-fisted grip on our pain just so that our knuckles are slightly less white and allow for God's redeeming love to enter in? Might we trust that God in our lives can cast out fear, 
that God in our lives can repair the breach, that God in our lives can restore us to right relationship. Church, God's love is powerful. As first John reminds us, God is love. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears, they've not reached that perfection in love. But we love because God first loved us. This grace-filled love. It's what we have been created for. We have been created to receive this love. To share this love. For Mary and O'Shea, this grace-filled love transformed their lives miraculously. Miraculously. May it be so for us all. Amen.